Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Hi, and I'm Susan Ellison, and I'm speaking from Wellesley College, which occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary unceded lands of the Massachusetts tribe. I recognize that I am on stolen land, and I extend my gratitude to the many indigenous peoples who have rich histories here, including the Massachusetts, Wampanoag, and Nipmuc nations, for their ongoing stewardship of the land. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alex, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of the Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking with Susan Ellison, who you've just heard. Susan is a sociocultural anthropologist and assistant professor in anthropology at Wellesley College. She is also the author of the book Domesticating Democracy, The Politics of Conflict Resolution in Bolivia. Before becoming an anthropologist, Susan had worked in Bolivia with environmental and indigenous rights movements. She was therefore in the country for the 2003 uprising. This was a massive protest around resource rents from natural gas, with many Bolivians wanting to see their nation have a much greater share of the benefits. Protests primarily focused on the twin cities of El Alto and La Paz, the nation's capital. As discussed in the show, due to the geography of the two cities, indigenous protesters from El Alto were able to cut off the roads and access to the airport into La Paz, effectively laying siege to the city. As discussed in the episode, Susan's research really began in the aftermath of those events. In our conversation, we talk about her research, both in regards to alternate dispute resolution and debt. As Susan says in her work, debt saturates everything. So here it is, my interview with Susan Ellison. Hi Susan, thanks for appearing on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, to kick us off, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your work in general? Well, so I'm a political and legal anthropologist. I also consider myself to be an urban anthropologist. And I guess broadly speaking, I, in my research, try to connect large-scale national debates about democracy, about justice, about foreign aid, to people's ordinary everyday struggles and lived experiences of violence and financial insecurity. I work primarily in Bolivia. I do know many of many in our audience probably aren't that familiar with Bolivia. So could you just give us a quick summary of, say, Bolivia and then where you've primarily conducted your research? So Bolivia, if you're not familiar with the country, if you look at a map of South America, it's kind of a big round ball in the middle of South America. It's a country that has a very large land mass, but actually a relatively small population, probably about 11 million people. Bolivia includes everything from the high plains surrounding the Andes Mountains. I live and work at a place that's about 13,000 feet above sea level, and it goes down, extends into uh, the Amazon basin. So it's a really diverse country in terms of its geography, in terms of its population. It is a largely indigenous country with indigenous Guarani, Quechua, Aymara, and other communities in the country. And the cities where I work 
are cities that are, that are heavily indigenous Aymara. So the city of Al Alto, which is located in the sort of high plains of the country, and then descends into a canyon that is occupied by the country seat of government or capital La Paz. And a lot of my work looks at the relationship between these two cities because El Alto didn't exist as a sort of its own city a little over 30 years ago, and it's one of the fastest growing cities now in the country. It was kind of a bedroom community for folks who were migrating from the high plains, from rural hamlets in the high plains to the peripheries of La Paz, the capital, many times working as uh, merchants or uh, working as empleadas, working as household servants to wealthier mestizo and European descendant elites who, who lived in the capital. And so geography plays a big role in my research as well because of the relationship between these two cities. One of the things that happens is because of the, the way that the capital is built into this basin, when the city of El Alto decides to exercise its political power, it often does so by laying siege to the capital and essentially cutting off roads and access into the capital. And so much of the sort of politics in the country has been enacted through things like blockades and strikes. And, and things like laying siege. And so this relates to my research in that I uh, have been living and working in the country since 2001. I actually went to Bolivia for the first time in the year 2000. But one of the things I look at is conflict and political conflict, social conflict, interpersonal conflict, and the way that sort of politics operates, but also how foreign donors and political elites and other political commentators who are Bolivian too have been preoccupied with conflict and how it unfolds in the country and have been undertaking projects uh, seeking to, as I say in my book, domesticate or to, to uh, lower, quote unquote, conflictualness in the country through a variety of different kinds of interventions. But then later on, you found yourself working in ADR, so that's alternative dispute resolution. Oh, not working in, sorry, studying, I should say. How did you find yourself there? So the way I came to my research and the reason I returned to Bolivia is, you know, I worked there for four years. I was living in La Paz during the 2003 uprising. And immediately in the aftermath of that uprising, there was a sudden surge in foreign aid coming from European and especially American U.S. donors that were targeting the city of El Alto and Bolivia more broadly, but especially El Alto, with an influx of post-conflict aid democracy assistance aid, quote unquote. There is this ongoing kind of discourse around Alteños and indigenous Bolivians and Bolivians who are involved in various kinds of sindicatos, so unions, other kinds of associations, associational politics as being hyper-conflictual, as frequently taking recourse to more confrontational forms of politics, those strikes, those protests, those blockades. And this concern that this was a, a destabilizing process. You know, a lot of democracy assistance programs globally tend to be preoccupied with encouraging people to get involved in politics. And the, the kind of analysis that these programs did was that Bolivians are too involved in politics and in the wrong ways. Like they're doing it, they're doing it too much and, in, and they are misdirecting their energy toward street protest and need to redirect their energy toward more formal channels of, of democratic participation and to sit down at the negotiation table and to learn how to negotiate for their demands. So alternative dispute resolution is one of the sort of toolkits that a lot of these programs were using. Alternative dispute resolution is a big umbrella that covers everything from commercial arbitration 
uh, and the ways that business people learn to negotiate agreements. Uh, and, and it also includes things like court-mandated mediation that people go to, say, if they're getting a divorce. Many places now have just normalized that you go and you see a, a mediator first to see if you can work it out that way. It also includes community-based mediation, where you maybe have trained folks from the community who informally learn these skills and are meant to help people work through their, their conflicts and their dilemmas. And so a lot of the programs I was looking at were sort of drawing on these repertoires from alternative dispute resolution and seeing them as a resource to try to lower the conflictualness of Bolivia and especially El Alto, really targeting neighborhoods that had been particularly involved in a lot of these protests. And also part of this, part of the justification was trying to keep people out of the court system. You talk that, a bit about that in your book. So yes, one of the real concerns that these programs had was with the court system. Bolivia's court system is heavily overburdened. And part of this effort of Bolivia to demonstrate that it's fighting the war on drugs is it was incarcerating mass numbers of people who they then could not actually get court dates for. And they were sitting in prisons for, for years and years and years. People often complain quite openly about the corruption that they experience in the courts, uh, ranging from having to pay bribes to having to do other kinds of things in order to, to move their cases along. And so one of the kind of analyses was people are so frustrated with dealing with the state legal system. It's such a source of stress. Alternative dispute resolution will provide people with a more satisfying, meaningful means to gain access to justice. Rather than getting stuck in the courts, they will be able to find resolution to their conflicts, to small-scale conflicts, say, with a neighbor or a relative or someone that they've contracted, a bricklayer they've contracted who didn't finish the project. If people can find resolution to those conflicts by avoiding the courts, it will also help people feel more satisfied. The truth is, you know, in many ways, these programs do respond to a very real need in the country, which is people experience it as abusive, slow, corrupt, and also a place where people encounter a lot of racism and sexism as well. The solution then was to say, let's redirect people away from these courts toward alternative means of resolving conflict. So before we get into the operation of this alternative dispute resolution, I think it's worth noting that you observed that the disputes to be resolved, they often revolved around similar themes. What sort of things were people going to these either the courts or the dispute resolution centres for? So the dispute resolution centres where I was working, I was working at a series of institutions that were called the Integrated Justice Centres that were set up in El Alto that were funded by USAID, and it was later taken over by the Ministry of Justice. And when I arrived, what I found was that people were coming to these dispute resolution services dealing with issues related to child support, dealing with issues related to conflicts in the family, a lot of folks were dealing with issues of domestic violence. But one of the things that I just could not escape, and try as I did to get away from it, I could not escape the number of cases that people were bringing to these dispute resolution centers that dealt with debt, with interpersonal loans, and with loans related to microfinance. And so one of the things that became a, a sort of central part of my book project was looking at the ways that people were bringing conflicts that were generated around loans 
and loans that people were giving to each other. So people were lending each other money, oftentimes to cover institutional bank loans, especially microfinance, small microfinance loans that they've received, or to pay back money lenders from whom they had taken out a loan in order to pay back their microfinance debt. And so as I began to do more and more research and began to speak to people working at different integrated justice centers, I discovered that about a third to half the caseload that they had was dealing with debt. And that became mm-hmm. a, a huge component of my work. And I think it's worth underlining there because you did mention, you have mentioned in your work that even other conflicts, disputes that might ostensibly be about domestic violence, what we would consider domestic violence, still interacts or still has this level of debt to them. Yes. So it seemed to saturate everything. Exactly. Debt saturated everything. Many of the conflicts that I saw that dealt with interpersonal conflict in families, say between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law, or interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence, oftentimes was saturated with debt. So, for example, one of the sort of tensions for the folks who work at the integrated justice centers was their understanding that domestic violence is criminal act and that perpetrators should be prosecuted. The staff oftentimes would try and discourage women who would come to the centers from merely issuing a complaint. They would often come and say, I want to issue a complaint. You know, my, I'm, my partner is violent. My husband is violent. And the staff member would say, well, let's, let's get evidence. I'll send you to the forensic examiner. We'll gather evidence and we can start a domestic violence complaint in the court. And the woman would say, no, 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 no. I want to have him invited to do conciliation because I need him to help me pay off a debt. And the conciliators would say, well, uh, debts between spouses are not legally recognized. And it would become a very messy thing. But what I saw again and again was that many women would come to the centers dealing with violence, but not wanting to pursue that as their primary or driving concern. What they felt more pressured by was the sort of relentless need to repay monthly and sometimes weekly loans that they had taken out. And that was what oftentimes women were preoccupied, even as conciliators themselves were kind of grappling with the ethics of that and whether or not that was even something that they could do. Absolutely. And I think in many ways we've now laid the sort of foundations of your book, Domesticating Democracy, which I have to, uh, I have to confess, I have writ- written a positive review of this book. So listeners, I may not be the most uh, unbiased, but it is an excellent book. Go give it a read. But those sort of that seems to form the two halves of the book, debt and alternative dispute resolution. How, what would you describe as, say, the main argument of your book? So the book is looking at the politics of foreign aid programs and the sort of macro politics like I was describing earlier, but I'm also interested in the sort of the ordinary everyday politics that occur in the unfolding of these programs as they've been implemented. And the, the title itself, Domesticating Democracy, is playing with something I, I kind of unpack in the introduction, which is to think about domesticate and domestication and domestic as a politically fraught word because we often think of domesticating as as taming, as silencing, as controlling people, animals. There's this real sort of charged quality to it, but it has other kinds of valences or meanings to it. And that is when we think about the domestic, we might think about domestic policy. Uh, We might think about domestic debates and how domestic debates in countries like the US end up impacting countries like Bolivia. And so I'm trying to think about 
how that word captures and how this sort of analytical frame captures both how these programs operate as well as how critics perceive them and how advocates perceive them. So I'm also thinking with ideas about the domestic sphere. Anthropologists tend to kind of deconstruct this idea of the domestic and the public. We see these things as completely enmeshed, but there is a sort of ideological commitment to this idea of domestic space that often motivates a lot of these programs that understand that we need to intervene into these intimate spaces of conflict because it will have repercussions for lowering conflict in the country. And I'm also interested in ideas about a sovereignty and the sort of critique of the role of these aid programs in interfering and in, in meddling in domestic politics in Bolivia as well. So I'm kind of trying to think through all of these different layers of what these aid programs are engaged in. You've mentioned previously that part of what you want to do is really connect like the macro politics with the micro politics. And I've got to say, in this state versus non-state sort of solution, I think a really good anecdote that you talk about in your book and also in your paper, um, was it you must comply with paper, Mm -hmm. is this argument that a bunch of ADR practitioners get into about their paper sizes. Could you talk us through that a little? Because I think it's a fantastic little story. Yeah, it's a great moment because I often say, and I think I got this from Kathy Lutz, but I always say to my students, every day you should write down when you're doing field work, something that surprised you. And this was the something that surprised me that day. I went to a training session that was intended to ensure that people were producing conciliation accords. These are the agreements that people reach at the end of a conciliation or mediation session, that they were producing them in ways that were systematized and that matched. And so this is an effort to kind of like talk about what should be in a conciliation accord and what should not be in a conciliation accord. So I marched down with all of these interns and other people working as conciliators to the Ministry of Justice, and we all broke into small groups and we looked at sample conciliation accords and we were told what we were supposed to do was identify errors in the conciliation accord in form and in function. So our little group worked away and worked away and came up with things and then we gathered again together as a group and we began to go through people's comments about what was wrong with different conciliation accords. And as we were going along people began to note that some integrated justice centers were publishing their conciliation accords on letter-sized paper, and others were publishing their conciliation accords on legal-sized paper. And this erupted in a huge fight. Now, I've got to ask, how different are these sizes of paper? It's, It's a matter of inches. So it's not a huge difference, but it is visually notable. And so this this sort of argument erupted, and it was, I think, a classic moment when you're doing field work where you think, what the heck is going on? I don't get it. It was clear to me that a lot of other people in the room, including the facilitator of this training session, also did not understand why people were fighting over this. And it was just mystifying. And some of the people were saying things like, it has to be on letter-sized paper. This is the size paper you don't use for legal disputes. Legal-sized paper you see in legal compendiums and legal files. And so there were people who were saying, we can't use legal-sized paper. Like, we're not the courts. We're not the state legal system. We are an alternative space to resolve disputes. That's the point. And other people were saying, well, now we're working with the Ministry of Justice, meaning now that USAID is no longer in charge, we're working under the auspices of the Ministry of Justice. And the point is, these conciliation accords should be something that can be that can be taken to court in the event that there's a breach of contract. It has to have the legal backing of the law. This went on for a significant amount of time. 
And it was just sort of this mystifying moment. And I have to say, in the moment, I was like, I don't get this. But because you're an anthropologist, you do follow-up interviews with people. So I did a bunch of follow-up interviews with people who were there, and I asked them to tell me what they understood that fight to be about, that argument to be about. And what I came to understand was that this really reflected a deep division among conciliators and among interns. What many of them understood this to be a fight about was what was the purpose, the fundamental purpose of conciliation? Is this about creating a space very much apart from the state legal system, or is it about having the backing of the state? And one of the things that kept happening in this, in this conversation at the time was that many of the folks who were gathered were reflecting on how clients of the integrated justice centers themselves demanded, wanted their documents to be published on legal-sized paper with all the attendant stamps and seals that very visibly mark a piece of paper as belonging to the state. So one of the things I try and analyze in that article and in that chapter is how there's no consensus among practitioners in Bolivia about what the purposes of these spaces are. It, you know, is this about creating a space apart or not? The other thing is a lot of the advocates of informal dispute resolution spaces is that this is about a place where it's oral, it's about you know speaking and working through conflict, it's informal, it's meant to create mutually beneficial solutions. There's a real emphasis on that quote unquote informality and the orality of it. Especially in Bolivia, advocates tend to frequently relate it to indigenous conflict resolution methods too and say, you know, this will have cultural resonance for people. What I found was that actually a lot of people wanted the piece of paper. And paper, I'm really interested in the sort of materiality of that piece of paper itself. The size of paper matters because for people who were coming to integrated justice centers, they wanted that piece of paper that looked like the state, that had the signs and the stamps and that was the right size that would say, the state is supporting me in this. So the kind of puzzle is, People really distrust the state in many ways, and they especially distrust the state legal system. They do not have confidence in it. They are often quite uncomfortable in those spaces and feel like they're dealing with abuse and corruption. And yet they want that avatar of state power with them. So one of the things I try and think about in that, in that chapter is how the sort of paper itself, the sort of material properties of the paper itself come to be a stand-in for or to index, that is to sort of represent uh, the state as people are trying to find ways to pressure people to repay loans. And again, I'm kind of going back to this theme about debt and the fact that a lot of the people who were coming into the integrated justice centers who wanted that piece of paper, it was because they wanted something that would in a sense, terrorize and terrify people into repaying their loans, even though that is not ostensibly the purpose of these programs. It's not about scaring people. And even though there was little expectation that the actual bite of the state was behind that piece of paper, there was still this expectation that it would have the effect, that just the paper itself would have the effect of pressuring people to repay their loans.
That's actually a really nice segue into some of your more recent work. In particular, I'm thinking of your article, Painted by Default, which also talks about the social pressures engendered by microfinance and how these this politics that really, as you point out, starts at the international level and filters through all these different levels to your most intimate relationships. Would you be able to talk us through that a little? So Painted by Default looks at the widespread use of defaulting debtor graffiti. That is, if you walk through the city of El Alto, if you walk through La Paz as well, neighboring La Paz, you will often see people's homes spray painted with the words Deodor Moroso, defaulting debtor. And I began to sort of follow up with people and ask, tell me more about what's going on with this defaulting debtor graffiti. And what I found was a couple things that it was unclear for many people who was actually painting their houses. And and the reason is a lot of times people would say, I didn't take out a loan. I signed as a guarantor on a loan for my uncle or for my sister or for my neighbor. I don't owe the bank anything, but they didn't pay their debt. And now the bank is coming for me. And so people would speculate, did the bank do this or did my friend do this because they're hoping to pressure me to pay off their loan with the bank to get them off their back. Because many people live in, in El Alto in multi-generational household compounds that will include sort of a big kind of plot of land, usually with uh, tall adobe walls. And within that compound, there might be a couple of different living spaces, maybe even more, where multi-generations of families live. And because of that, one of the things I'm interested in is how spray painting a person's house with the phrase defaulting debtor doesn't just implicate the person who took out the loan or the person who signed as the guarantor. It implicates the entire family. It becomes a very visible and very public pronunciation of insolvency that your neighbors can see, that your family members are aware of. And so people oftentimes try to scrub it out. You know, they try and cover it up. People come back and they and they paint it again. And so I'm interested in the way that loan recovery practices are spatialized and are quite literally materialized onto people's outward-facing household walls. This is important in part because a lot of times people, when they don't repay, they're actually living outside of the country or they physically move. They leave the city. They become difficult to track down. And this becomes a way for lenders to pressure the people who remain behind to pay that person's debt. It's kind of a way of preventing that escape hatch of leaving the country or moving to a different city because someone's still there and those are the folks that you can then pressure to repay the loan. And what I found is that many times people take out additional loans through money lenders, for example, or other friends and kin to then pay off the bank loan, even if it's not their own loan, if, if it was a loan of their the person for whom they're serving as a, as a guarantor. So the, the loans get paid off. It just may be that it's your sister who's paying off your loan instead of you because of the the humiliating stamp of defaulting debtor on your outer walls. But all of this, I mean, to be clear, we've sort of talked around it, but this really does kind of reformat kinship relationships, or at least it can reformat kinship relationships. I mean, going back to alternative dispute resolution, you point out who is a party to that dispute resolution is really important, and sometimes people want it in order to limit the people they have responsibilities to, no? Right. I mean, one of the things that these programs grapple with is there are different expectations about who should be present in dealing with a dispute. Sometimes people feel like they're too entangled with their in-laws and others, and they do see 
walking into this space where there's a kind of understanding that this is a dispute I talk about in terms of like a dyadic approach to conflict, that there are two parties in dispute. If it's a husband and wife, or it's a, a neighbor and another neighbor, that these are the folks who are going to enter into this conversation, and they're going to find a solution to this problem. Oftentimes, working at the center's whole families show up, extended families show up, neighbors show up, wanting to be present in dealing with a dispute, especially if it's a young person, because there are expectations that are being drawn from other repertoires of resolving conflict in neighborhood associations, in communities, where more people participate in that process. And oftentimes there's this moment where conciliators are saying, no, 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 only those directly in dispute here can enter. For some people, that's a relief because they actually do want a space apart from meddling, quote unquote, meddling in-laws. But other times that distinction is really hard. And again, I come back to debt. This is why debt is such a recurring theme. It deals with so many conflicts where multiple different families come into the center because they're all linked together through overlapping debts. And they all know each other, and they're all trying to navigate different kinds of debts, both moral and material, so both financial and other kinds of sort of moral debts about roles people should be playing or not playing, or, you know, cases of beer owed from previous celebrations. Like, there's a real sort of fine accounting of people's financial and moral failings that get brought into these spaces, and they include multiple different households as well sometimes. So that attempt to kind of draw neat boundaries may be practical and pragmatic for people who are tasked with resolving these conflicts, and maybe even for the couple, if it's particularly if it's a young couple themselves. But oftentimes it forces out of the picture the sort of larger complicated economic and social relations that are at play in that conflict uh, and kind of a lot of what I'm looking at is what gets written out of the accord. So for example, when women come in wanting to resolve disputes with a spouse and the conciliator saying, but you're telling me that he beats you. I want to send you to the forensic medical examiner. I want to encourage you to pursue a criminal case against him. And she's saying, no, no, I just want to deal with this debt that I need to pay and I want him to help me pay it the violence gets written out. The violence is no longer present in the accord. So I'm thinking a lot about what what gets written out of those agreements, but that is still fundamental to why those conflicts exist. If things are being excluded from the room of these dispute resolutions, sometimes literally people being excluded, what are some of the material ways or practical ways this is being reflected in people's wider lives. Are we seeing an effect? Your question is provoking me to think about two different things. One is Mm -hmm. how conflict is resolved and what the material effects are and how conflict is resolved. I don't know if that's quite where you're going, but on the one hand, people who have historically played a role in dealing with conflict, for example, padrinos, godfathers of marriage, oftentimes have played a role in helping deal with conflict between a young married couple. And increasingly, they're seen as like superfluous, like you're not supposed to be in this space. There is a tendency in in this to say, like, don't turn to those family members to resolve this conflict. We're going to deal with it. And you are autonomous people and should assume these the resolution of your conflicts as adults. And the reason I keep thinking of young adults is because I saw this over and over again when there would be like a young couple, you know, early 20s, late teens, 
that we're dealing with conflict or we're dealing with maybe they were separating and we're dealing with child support. And oftentimes they were told, like, you need to be an adult and assume responsibility for these decisions. And your uncles and your aunts and these other people who might be named explicitly as padrinos of the marriage who are intended to be kind of like moral guides and someone you turn to in a moment of conflict to get advice are sort of discouraged from participating and oftentimes get very upset about it uh, in the waiting room because they're all there in the waiting room getting real worked up about the fact that they can't go into the room to conciliate. I spent a lot of time going and trying to like pull people apart to say that was that was my one of my social roles in the integrated <laughs> justice center was send Susanna to go and like try and break apart the families. So I, you know, I can't say whether or not those people actually absorb that message. You know, one thing is I can see that message being given. I don't know that people actually absorb it. They may very well continue to turn to these people as resources for dealing with conflict. The other thing is when we're thinking back to the debt issue is a lot of times in these spaces there may be an agreement that's reached between close friends and kin, and oftentimes those things overlap, especially when it comes to fictive kin. So compadres, comadres. Just very quickly, mm-hmm. compadre, comadre for non-Spanish speakers. Compadre, comadre. So in Bolivia, people often name people as godparents for major life rites of passage. So there's a kind of proliferation of godparents, but the really core folks are usually the godparents of your baptism and of your rutucha, which is the first haircut, and your marriage. And if you have a child and you name someone as your uh, the madrina, the godmother of that child, she becomes your comadre. She becomes your co-mother of that child. So padrinos are your godparent and compadres are your co-parents. That is a lateral relationship. So compadre, a lot of these relationships are sustained through various kinds of moral and material sharing, uh, or I should say, through various forms of moral and material debts. So playing a particular kind of role in someone's life, but it also means helping chip in money when someone needs help, being there for someone if they need a place to stay. There's all kinds of ways that people share in sort of classic anthropological kinship language, like substance with each other, food, chewing coca, and lending each other money. And that's why so many of these sort of debt relationships involve people who are related to you in in this sort of fictive kinship way of being compadres. And so one of the things that I I saw a lot of, and I talk about in the Defaulting Debtor article, and I talk about it in the book too, is that people begin to withdraw support from those people. They say, I've been burned. I am always lending my comadre or my sister-in-law money, and I'm just not going to do it anymore. So one of the ironies here is a lot of these, and this has been studied by other anthropologists who look at the way that microfinance relies on social networks. And Carly Schuster, for example, who you know, we talk about in terms of the actual creation of these sort of social networks for the purposes of microfinance. In the Bolivian case, they very much rely on people drawing in their extended kin networks, including their comadres and compadres into these microfinance groups. And as people are falling deeper and deeper into debt and cannot recover those loans and are taking out loans from other people to pay back those loans or from money lenders to pay back those loans, folks begin to withdraw the financial support they once offered. So the material effect is what was a very normalized social practice with an extended timeline. I'll give you money and when you're able, you'll pay me back. 
with the sort of pressures of microfinance and now with the pressures of going to the conciliation center and getting a document that presumably has a very regimented payment schedule, because that's what you're going to sign up for, you have this enormous pressure not only to meet the sort of microfinance quota or the deadline you have with your money lender, but you have this document that's telling you, you've got to pay me on these dates. And either people feel enormous pressure to do that and it, it, you know they fail and it strains that relationship further, or people who are the, the lender oftentimes you know hem and haw about the fact that this person keeps missing their quota payments and like, I'm just not going to loan people money anymore because they're not going to pay me back and I have my own debts. So it has changed the dynamic of these kinds of relationships where friendship and kinship are very much tied in with lending people money when they need it or providing other kinds of supports when they need it. And that's being withdrawn, which I think ironically, you know, a lot of microfinance institutions rely on that because people can't pay back their microfinance quotas unless they're relying on these kinship networks to pay back their microfinance quotas. And a lot of people analyze that through the lens of like extractivism, because of course there's interest on top of all these debts. Yes, very much so. Last question. Mm-hmm. And this is a question that anthropologists hate because we hate being pinned down to recommendations. Oh no. I know. But between alternative dispute resolution, microfinance, these sorts of like, I guess, policies, what sort of changes would you like to see happen across either or or both? I think I'll focus on the ADR one. There have been a number of anthropologists, others who have written a lot about this and who I think have done some work sort of talking about some of the policy implications. I think with ADR, you can imagine I'm feeling pretty ambivalent about giving policy recommendations. But I will say one of the things I noticed and I talk a lot about in the early part of the book is that as Bolivian jurists and sort of legal experts were in conversation with various donors First of all, a lot of transformations to the Bolivian justice system have been introduced by foreign donors. For example, the introduction of juries, which existed when I was doing fieldwork for this project and no longer exist because they could never get people to show up for jury duty because many people didn't have recognizable addresses, so they would never even receive the, the summons. One of the complaints I heard was folks who were coming in from these programs Oftentimes they came in with either cookie cutter ideas about how to transform the state legal system that that they were going to adapt to the Bolivian context or they had their own agenda. You know, it was about freeing up space in the courts in order to help Bolivia better prosecute the drug war, you know, helping to create a legal apparatus that was going to serve the interests of the U.S. government in that way. There was a lot of skepticism and a lot of frustration this perception that donors either came in with their pre-made solutions or with their own agenda and that they didn't really listen to what people were saying. So, you know, my point is not here's the solution, but rather this was a recurring frustration I heard from folks who worked in the Bolivian courts, which was we're not being listened to and the way the sort of issues that we're identifying are not legible to donors, but this is where we're getting our funding in order to actually finance these kinds of programs. So we'll take advantage of it. In some ways, one of the reasons I wrestle with this question is because in many ways, these ADR programs did respond to very real frustrations people have with the state legal system. It did introduce spaces where people were able to go and find mechanisms to at least deal with the most pressing of those issues. 
and people would say it's a band-aid solution in their own words. I would agree oftentimes they were kind of like short-term ways of managing the extraordinary pressure people were feeling. Like I say, oftentimes the kind of larger structural political economic issues, the patterns of debt were erased from the conciliation courts themselves as you were kind of breaking these down into little dyadic units that you could resolve disputes. You essentially erased how widespread these debt conflicts are and how compounding they are and what havoc they're wreaking on people's lives. In that way, though the conciliator themselves, the, the people working in these centers are aware of those conflicts and are aware of that context, it never rises to the level of being something that, you know, the government says, hmm, maybe we need to deal with this. So first would be just listen to people in the country themselves and that made me more slow moving. You know, one of the problems is when I talk about the domestics is foreign donors have their own domestics to which they are accountable. So you want to prove that you have, you know, results of the programs that you are implementing and that you can quantify them and justify the investment of this money. Well, you know, really addressing large, sort of these deeper systemic issues may not be easily quantified in the time frame that you need to prove to Congress that this is a legitimate investment, especially if you're taking the time to say, you know, what a local or national experts, the people who are themselves living these issues, understand to be what their situation is and what would be a meaningful and useful intervention into that. But there, there need to be ways to kind of repoliticize in that way the work that these programs do. So one of the things I, I talk about is that typically in anthropology and critical development studies, we talk about the depoliticizing effect of a lot of development aid, that these, that these take issues that are at their heart political economic issues and turn them into technocratic issues that need to be solved with, in this case, therapeutic solutions to what are at their heart political and economic issues. They have become hyper-politicized in Bolivia because they've been pulled into this debate about foreign political meddling. But the actual sort of everyday politics of how the conflicts that people are grappling with is erased. And so I think in the event you know that Bolivia continues to find or other places continue to find that alternative dispute resolution spaces are valuable, then the question becomes, how do you create mechanisms to say, what are people dealing with? What are the patterns of that? And how do we repoliticize it in the sense of recognizing that there may be things going on that are not about just resolving this in a therapeutic, dyadic setting where we put a Band-Aid on what is in fact a widespread source of conflict and misery when it comes to these sort of issues of over-indebtedness. Look, it's difficult. We're not great at giving advice, but I think that's some solid advice, particularly straight talking coming from an anthropologist. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Thank you so much for um, having me. Absolute pleasure. And that was it. A bit of a quick farewell there at the end, I know. But it was Susan Ellison and myself. Today's episode was produced by me, Alex, with help from the other familiar strangers. Simon Theobald, Claire Bajau, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Sean Liu, Deanna Caddo, and Matthew Fong. 
subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. The most recent blog post is from TFS alumni Julia Brown. It's about the craziness that's been happening in California over the last year. Go check it out at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maudrow. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.